Good morning. Brought my box of cable with me this morning because there's some, there's some great things technically going on. I'm not going to say much more about those because we'll, we'll uh, be sharing that online website or, or the BP Blast this, this, this week. If it all works out, you know how technical things are. It's still figuring out how to program the remote. But, but um, got me thinking about technical stuff, and so I've got this cable, and I see some of, the, some of the kids here this morning, we're not gathering everybody all together, but I still thought I could, I could show you something. Would that be all right? We'll, we'll start that way and then move into the rest of the message. This, this box of cable, um, let's say that we're using this to represent time, okay? Let's say that, let me go this way because the past is back there. From, from creation, if this was the time representing creation, from creation till today, roughly 6,000, maybe 8,000 years, depending on whose dating you use. I know some of you are thinking, wait, isn't that millions and billions of years? Well, no, we're not talking about theories. We're talking about what the Bible actually says. So if that were the case, then imagine I've got a pink, I've got a pink line. Can you see that pink? Oh, no, that even shows up out there. Does that show up? Oh, good, I chose a bright pink. Well, it's a little wide, but let's say that pink, in the, compared to the whole span, that pink represented 100 years. It's about twice as wide as it needs to be for that, but let's just work with me. 100 years. Is anybody here 100 years old? Some, some mornings you, you get up, you feel a hundred years old, but no, nobody's quite a hundred, okay, okay, then um, maybe you'll, you'll reach a hundred, okay, maybe, maybe that's how long you'll live, maybe that's how many years you'll get. Now, what shall, if, if this span of time is all you get, and the rest of the whole cable is really irrelevant, then you better get, the way one Bible teacher used to say it, you better suck this life like a lemon for all you can get out of it, Right? You're going to squeeze everything you can into this little bit of life. But is this life all that there is? Let me turn my box around. There we go. So we have this much time so far. Well, how much more time is there? After your life, your time is going to go on and on and on. And we could keep going. The box says 500 feet, but I'm not going to do all that. It would just make a mess, and I have to roll all of it back in because I want to honor the tech people and all the work that they do. But you get the point. Imagine if this box was endless. That's how much time is ahead of you from this life going forward. Now, what are you going to do with the time that you've got here in the pink? What are you going to do with the time of this life if... That time is going to impact all of this forever and forever and ever. That changes what we do with the time that we have. We could focus on the here and the now and what could I get out of today for me today. Or I could say, what difference could I make today that's going to matter into eternity? And that's kind of the focus. Let me get this up so, so nobody trips on it. Okay? Worship team, don't trip on it. There. My job is done. My responsibility is ended. The, um, the, 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 the passage we're going to be in today, Daniel chapter 7, speaks to this flow of time, this history. And for us now, what has happened from the past into the future, okay? Daniel chapter 7 is a, is a uh, 
transitional chapter, it's, it moves from the story, the narrative of Daniel's life into the prophetic, uh, pr- prophetic visions that Daniel has. So we talk about narrative versus apocalyptic or prophecy. Now also Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 is the last chapter that was originally written in the Aramaic language. Aramaic was almost kind of a universal language in the Middle East then, sort of like English is a fairly universal language in many parts of the world today. So it wasn't the language of Daniel, his heart language, his home language, and God's people Israel. That was Hebrew, but it was related to that. It was similar. Daniel chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Then chapter 2, all the way through chapter 7, is written in Aramaic as if God is speaking specifically to the nations of the earth during this time. Daniel is taken out of Jerusalem, and now the focus is no longer on on Israel in the land in Jerusalem, but it's Israel among the nations, among the languages of the nations. And then, starting in chapter 8, we're going to focus specifically on looking ahead for God's people into the future, and God returns. He has specific words for his people now that he returns in chapter 8 forward back into Hebrew again. So we're wrapping up that God is presenting something to the nations as a whole that deals with the rule of the nations on the earth and even how that relates to God's people. So Daniel chapter 7, we, we started with, a, um, with a, a song earlier. It said that the first song we sang, it said in the third line, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave. That's a historic reality. The resurrection of Jesus is the historic reality, just as these details in Daniel chapter 7. Who rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. Now, those lines caught my attention when we were singing. That it doesn't say, um, uh, well, it says that, that Jesus rose in the strife, in the midst of the strife, in the midst of the turmoil of the age. Jesus himself comes into that. He dies because of the turmoil of fallen humanity, the, the um, rampant sin that has infected all of humanity, and the turmoil and strife that that creates, and he bears that sin upon himself, and he dies in our place. He rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. Chapter 7 is a, is a chapter, and some of the ones that are follow are going to deal with the strife that goes along with the um, empires of the world. But let's jump into the chapter. I want to, I want to uh, start by reading the first 14 verses. Daniel has a dream. Now, it's going it's to tell us that it starts in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. We've already met Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. And that was in the 13th year of Belshazzar. So this is, this is 13 years or 14 years before that. It, the, um, um, so time-wise, it would fit earlier than chapter 5. Um, Babylon is going to end in 13 or 14 years. And it's God, as God, is giving, God is giving a final warning. Through Belshazzar, just as he starts his administration, God is giving him a final warning because sooner or later, in Daniel chapter 5, time is going to run out. Belshazzar waits too late. 
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Now that's interesting. That's the same kind of language, the same little poetic phrase that was used of King Nebuchadnezzar's visions. And Daniel interprets them. Well, now Daniel has a vision. Daniel declared... No, sorry, I, I, I have another line to read. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel wrote down the dream. We're going to get the details of his dream, his vision, but we're also going to get, but what was it, what, what did it mean? What was the point? What is the sum of the matter? What's the takeaway truth? That's what we want to watch for. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to that beast. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. That's a strange-looking leopard, isn't it? It gets worse. The beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broken pieces. It stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, there's a scene change here. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. We have moved from watching the flow of these empires, these beasts, through history which will be explained. We, we have moved from that now. The camera has gone, has cut to a scene in heaven. We have, we have uh, jumped from the affairs of earth into Revelation 4 and 5 in the throne room of God. So, uh, so in verse 9, find my place again. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued, and it came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, and so there's this scene in heaven, and then there's this blasphemies. These great words are blasphemous words, boastful words, that this horn, this particular ruler that emerges at some point late in the game. And as the scene of heaven is going on, there's this stuff with this ruler. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll peek ahead, and we'll identify him as the Antichrist. Even as the book of Revelations has the scene in heaven, and then it has this turmoil going on on the earth. There's a lot of parallels here. He's speaking, he's speaking great things. Let me see. The sound of the great words that the horn was speaking as I looked, the beast was killed and its body is destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So first of all, we have this, this in, the, in the first year of Belshazzar, we have, we have this vision. Now, what's going on with Daniel at this time? In, in, the, in the previous five years in Babylon, there have been two coups and four kings in, in a five-year period. There's been a lot of turmoil. There's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of reshuffling the deck. And now Daniel is on the outside. Daniel is roughly 68 to 70 years old. But he is not one of those that is called on to counsel and advise this new administration. He's not in the council. He's not the prime minister. So Daniel seems to be left out because we know at the, in, the, in, the, in Daniel chapter 5, 14 years later or 13 years later, that Belshazzar doesn't even know who Daniel is. Are you, that, are, are you this Daniel who's one of the captives? So Daniel has been left out to the side. Now this vision with, with these empires seems to be a recast of an earlier film. It seems to be a remake where you're keeping the same plot line even if there's new characters, new personalities being introduced. We've seen this before, this transition from empire to empire, kingdom to kingdom in Daniel chapter 2. And now here it is again in Daniel chapter 7. God is going to move on from Babylon. That's one of the things it confirms. Belshazzar, you've got, you've got 13 years and it's going to be over. He doesn't know that yet, but God is warning him at the start of his rule. God gives foolish Belshazzar 13 or 14 more years, but as described, time will run out. Now the beasts emerge from the sea of humanity. The sea is stormy. The four winds are stirring it up. I, 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 I take those four winds from heaven that God continues to be involved in the earth. And God is not always trying to make peace on the earth, um, Jesus said his coming would, would create conflict. It would set children against parents even. It would divide families. And God continues to stir, exposing the futility of humanity, trying to run things by ourselves without him. So you have this chaos of the sea, and the, there's, the, there's a picture you kind of need to go back to creation to capture here. In the midst of creation, in the ancient Near East, the sea was seen as chaotic and tumultuous and troublesome and dangerous and uncontrollable. Nobody could control the sea. But God, in his creation, he causes from the sea dry land to emerge. And God in creation is bringing order out of chaos. And then in the fall of humanity... They, the order has been turned back into chaos. And out of this chaotic sea, you of the sea of humanity, you have empires, individual, arising. So the empires that are, that are arising, they're shown as beasts. Now that's interesting. Man was created in the Garden of Eden to exercise dominion. Man was created in God's image. Man was created as upright. Man was to exercise dominion to rule over the beasts of the field in particular and over all the rest of God's creation on God's behalf, right? But then the fall comes and the humanity rebels. Humanity goes, goes along with Frank Sinatra. I'm going to do it my way instead of God's way. And now, what does that way look like? Well, as you continue the story through Genesis, in fact, immediately it is murder and mayhem, Cain against Abel, and that only continues. One oppressing dominion becomes dominating. 
And uh, the turmoil, even between the man and the woman, begins and continues. And so you have this this moving through history where the empires, the rule, those who exercise rule, they are not exercising rule as men created in the image of God. They are ruling as beasts. This is the other side. This is the reality side of that golden image which started so good but ends up getting rougher and rougher as it went down from the head of gold to the silver to the bronze to the iron to the feet of iron and clay. And now you come over here and you have beasts. Those humans who are ruling, they, they are not ruling as image bearers of God, exercising God's dominion over creation. They are ruling and devouring one another. The human made in God's image, God's image has become a beast. That's the picture. Okay? Now, as we look at the beast individual... Now, I said there's a comparison that we can make between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. You have Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then you have the following Rome, the remnants of Rome. Some people talk about a revived Roman Empire. Uh, We'll talk about what people talk about in a few minutes. But first of all, there's a head of gold, there's a winged lion. Now, it's interesting what is said about the winged lion as you go back in Daniel chapter 7 again. Uh, he saw the four great beasts. The first, in verse 4, was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. But then what happens? The, eagle, the wings are plucked. The first empire, and especially one of the kings of that empire, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. I think Nebuchadnezzar is the winged lion. Nebuchadnezzar stands for Babylon as a whole. So you have this word that's translated in some versions, kings. Some versions is translated as kingdoms. It's because they're interchangeable. The king stands for the kingdom and the empire. And Nebuchadnezzar stood for Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, the, the winged lion. Remember that cover slide that I had? That, 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 that title picture, that winged lion, that's an image that comes from the ruins of Babylon. There were 120 of those that, along the main processional entrance to Babylon. So everybody would have known historically at that time, what, because we're living in Babylon, everybody knew what the winged lion was. But the winged lion's wings were plucked even as Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. The man was made a beast, and he went about on all fours. But then what happens in verse 4? Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, and then it was made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. God intervened, and in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar finally, after being humbled, comes into his right mind concerning who he is and who God is. And for the last few years of his reign, he gets to rule as a man and not a beast. Suggested here in Daniel chapter 7. But after him, there was, there was another beast. After him, there was this bear, and it's the unbalanced bear. The unbalanced bear has got three ribs in its teeth because he has been arising and devouring much flesh. He has already devoured three empires by these three ribs, probably Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. And, uh, and so you have Persia. It's an unbalanced bear. It's a lopsided bear. One side stronger than the other because Persia was stronger than the Median Empire and Persia would overtake the Medes and it would become the Persian Empire. 
After, after that, the next empire is, is Greece, the four-headed, four-winged leopard. Four-winged because Alexander the Great and, and the Macedonian or Greek empire was faster than anything before it. And he literally flew across the world. He conquered and conquered until the point that he's, it's said that when he died in his mid-30s, he died because he had no more worlds to conquer. And he was living in excess, and I won't go into all those details, but, but Alexander dies early and unexpectedly, and his empire, this Greek Macedonian empire, is divided among his four leading generals. There's the four heads of this fourth beast. And two of those four heads are going to come to play later on as they battle each other and keep going back and forth through the land of Israel. We'll get to that a little later in, in, in the coming chapters. So you have the leopard, Alexander, his four generals, and finally you have a terrifying, dreadful beast, different in appearance, destruction and power from any before it. And it has ten corns and it speaks boastful things, prideful things, blasphemous things. That horn, is where, that's going to be developed further and further prophecies. I'll let you peek ahead just a little bit. The horn represents the final Antichrist. Now, there are many Antichrist figures in history. I think Adolf Hitler was the closest thing the 20th century saw to an Antichrist. Uh, maybe Joseph Stalin was another contemporary with him. There's an ancient, in, in, in Greek history, we'll come up against him in chapter 10 or 11. You'll find a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, probably historically the best example of Antichrist. And there have been others, some of the Caesars. So as John says, there are many Antichrists in the world, but there's one in particular coming, and that is this little horn. Okay, but then the scene shifts. Just when you're getting these details about the little horn and, the, and the, ten, the ten kings, and we want to dig into that and know because that seems a little more contemporary to us. We want to know more about that. All of a sudden, the camera shifts. And now we're looking at the scene in heaven. And there's the Ancient of Days. The boastful blasphemy is cut off. God always has the final answer. The beast ruling the earth by fallen, of fallen humanity dominating and oppressing one another is ended. The Son of Man comes with clouds of heaven. That's just what Jesus says in Matthew 26, isn't it? When they press him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And he says, yes, as you say, and you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying Daniel 7 is going to be realized. Your time is coming Jesus is treating them a little like Belshazzar, although they think they are the keepers and guardians of the, of the vessels of the temple. Okay, so, so um, the, the Son of Man comes, and as in Revelation 4 and 5, the Son of Man enters the throne room, is given dominion over all people, nations, and languages. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion that will never end. That's a comforting view of the, of the end. It's looking ahead. It's like one of these movies where you, 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 you start at the end and then you back up three days. You've seen some of those? This is kind of like that. You cut to the end all of a sudden, but Daniel still wants to know some more about what's going on here. So look at verse 15. Daniel's still troubled, troubled by some of these things, and he says in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. When things are happening, if you imagine Daniel sees what's coming, it alarms him. What if you feel like you're living in the midst of some of that? 
that would give you anxiety. That would cause you some alarm, and you want to know what's going on. You want to try to understand. And I approached one of those who stood there, and I asked him the truth concerning all of these. One of those who stood by the throne of God. Daniel enters his dream. You ever done that? You ever entered your own dream? And there you are, and you're acting now, or you're being chased or something. We, that happens. Daniel, Daniel's now in the dream. He approaches one of those angels. Maybe it's Gabriel, because Gabriel's going to going to show up here later, and Gabriel is very involved in things around the coming of Jesus. He approached and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made me to know the interpretation of the things. Daniel wants to know, what is it all about? What is the truth of all this? You see all these details, horns and an antichrist and speaking boastful things, and then God intervened. You want to know, how is this going to play out, right? Yeah? Let me tell you. Give you the answer right here today. Here it is. These four great beasts are four kings and kingdoms who shall arise out of the earth just like chapter 2. But, 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 and it's a big but. It's a big adversative. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. That is the point that Daniel's supposed to get. We can get caught up in all kinds of things, right? But that's the point Daniel's supposed to leave the room with. That's what he's supposed to be strengthened. Heaven often tells us less than we want to know. God often gives us less details than we actually want. We end up filling in the gaps ourselves, sometimes in unhelpful ways. But what Daniel needs to do here is grab hold of the part that God is telling him. Daniel, for now, this is what you need to know. But did you catch the shift? In verse 14, who is the kingdom given to? In verse 14, the kingdom is given to the Son of Man and his dominion will last forever. Right? In verse 17 and 18, who is the kingdom given to? Let's put that back up there again. Put verse 17 and 18 back up there again. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. Look at the emphasis here. Forever and a forever of forevers is how you would read that in the Aramaic. It's emphasized that the saints receive the kingdom and keep it forever. The Son of Man, Jesus, God sets his king on his holy hill. And we shall reign with him forever. That's what Romans chapter 8 tells us, that we are heirs of God. Those who believe in Jesus as Savior, those who have been redeemed and restored into relationship with God that we were meant to have because of faith in Jesus and his forgiveness for our guilt, for our rebellion, our going our own way, that, that we are restored into relationship with God and we are then heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we endure with him, we shall reign with him. End of the book, Revelation 20 and verse 6 says, Those who are resurrected in Jesus will be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him. That's what Daniel's saying. That's one of the reasons it's in Revelation is because it's also in Daniel. God gave Daniel this glimpse of our shared future that much earlier that we will reign with him forever and forever and ever. This is why Jesus begins his manifesto of God's kingdom. 
Jesus comes, he's Messiah. People are anticipating the kingdom. So, so as Jesus presents his kingdom in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, think of it as Jesus' presentation of the kingdom. This is his kingdom manifesto. And he starts it this way. You recognize this. He starts it, blessed are the poor in spirit, under Roman oppression at present, and under the corrupt leadership and also domination and oppression of the ruling class in Israel, the Herods, who pretend to be king, and the the, uh, Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, who pretend to be leaders in worship and don't believe in any of it. Jesus says to those who do believe, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You stand with Daniel. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't simply saying it's going to be better. Don't worry, hold on, things are going to look up. Jesus is reminding them of the promise of Daniel that the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is yours. The kingdom is for you. You who were cast aside like Daniel are going to be at the center of it because Jesus is going to say, you come up here and sit with me. Remember his parable? The person who takes the front seat, the person who sits in the back, and the person who sits in the back is pulled up front. That's what Jesus intends to do with you. You shall reign with him. If you belong to him, you shall reign with him. You don't see it yet. It doesn't look like it yet. It doesn't feel like it now. But it is coming. This is the truth of the matter. This is the sum of the thing. This is what God intends for this angel to make sure if Daniel gets nothing else, and there's a lot of details in these images, but if he gets nothing else, Daniel better get that. Now, it's nice to know the future, isn't it? It's nice to know that sooner or later, someday, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, and we're going to be with him in it, but what do I do today? What difference does that make now? We ought to be wondering that. And that's why Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with his Beatitudes, but he doesn't end there. That is the beauty in the midst of the beast or the beauty after the beast, but it doesn't end there. Jesus continues now. The very next verse he says, You, though oppressed and rejected and persecuted and reviled because of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And don't hide your light then. Don't hunker down. Don't be afraid. Let your light shine. Even if you're reviled. Even if you're misunderstood. Even if you're persecuted for it. Even if it costs you. Let your light shine because others need to see it too. People need the righteousness that you also long for experientially. People need a righteousness not religion, if they are going to enter 
God's kingdom. Jesus said, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds those religious practices of the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers of the law. No, that is not good enough. You need a righteousness which comes from God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the people around us need. We are the salt. We are the light. We are the ones who know this. This is how we use that pink spot on the cable. That's what we do at this time that we've got in terms of going to others around us, bringing them also into God's family, building up one another as followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus who do what? Go to others around us just like he did. Bring them into God's family to be built up as followers of Jesus. And it continues. Now, in verses 19 to 22, Daniel still wants to know the truth specifically about that fourth kingdom. About the different appearance, the destruction, the power of the previous. Look at verses 19 and following. Then I desired to know the truth, not everything, not all the details, the full explanation. Don't ruin, spoiler alert here, don't ruin the movie. I want to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying, and so forth, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up in verse 20. And as I looked, that horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. Daniel wants to know specifically at the end of the age when these things are coming to a climactic conclusion, what is that going to look like? It's interesting to me that Daniel is not more interested in Persia and in Greece because Persia particularly is going to impact him a lot more. Greece is going to have a, have a tremendous impact on his people just prior to the coming of Messiah. And yet he asks about this last beast, and he asks about the end of that empire. What's going to happen there? Tell me more about that, please. You know, since the 70s, the church has been very interested in prophecy. One of the books that was published around that time was by a guy named Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was an analysis of these prophecies of Daniel compared to the signs of the times. And we're looking for these ten kings. And since we know that that fourth empire seems to be Rome, then somehow this end of days empire must be somehow connected with Rome in a revived version of that and so we begin to look to Europe. And if there was any kind of ten-nation group or confederacy in Europe, well, that was it. Those were the ten kings, and out of them the Antichrist would come, and people started naming names and predicting. And we looked at NATO. Oh, but NATO's too big. And then we looked at even OPEC was on the list for a while. And then we looked at the European Union. It's got to be it. But at that time, I think the European Union had, had 12 and then 13 and then 14. It was going the wrong way. It was almost like people were, were, were kind of rooting for the Antichrist to arise and take down three or four of these other kingdoms so that there would be the right number ten. Getting a little careless in our interpretations, we were almost rooting for the wrong side. And there's a danger there. There's a danger when we, when we begin to, to focus so much on our own opinion of how we think things are, that we can miss God's truth. 
We can focus so much in our own opinion that we miss the essential truth that God is communicating to us. And that's what we find here in Daniel chapter 7. In the midst of all that stuff, there is a core truth that we are not supposed to miss. And that explanation is given to Daniel starting in verse 23. As for the fourth beast, there's a fourth kingdom. It's different from the others and it's going to devour. And there's ten horns of this kingdom are ten different kings that shall arise. We're told enough to recognize it as it happens. We're not told enough on any of these empires to recognize them before they happen. Now, as we go, we're going to get introduced to Medo-Persia in future chapters and to Greece in future chapters. But we're never specifically explained this fourth beast. We're given enough to recognize it when it comes, but not really to predict it. And we've had all kinds of crazy interpretations that have arisen. Most of those interpretations that have arisen have arisen with a focus on Rome and a particular focus on Western Europe in relation to Rome. Now, why is that? We think of Rome, we think of Western Europe. And so we looked at the European Union and so on. Well, it's easy for us to forget, because our history, is, our history is somewhat deficient, that the Roman Empire was divided. In fact, just prior to Constantine, there were two emperors plus two Caesars. A Caesar at that time was an assistant emperor. He was the next in line. And there was one based in the west, and there was one, based, one pair based in the east. And then Constantine pulls it all together under himself. He conquers the others and pulls it back in, and he's the ruler of everything. He moves his capital to, to Byzantium, renames it Constant, Constantinople after himself. You know it as Istanbul today. And the Roman Empire is divided into west and east. Okay, so there's a Western Roman Empire and an Eastern Roman Empire. Now, which one of those do you think was wealthier? Which one of those do you think was more populated? Which one of those do you think had more Jews and Christians in it? The answer to all of those is the East, not the West. Which one of those do you think lasted longer? The Western Roman Empire collapses in about 476. The Eastern Roman Empire lasts for another thousand years. We focus on the West. Why? Because we're basic, majority of us are, are related to Western Europe. And that's what we focus on. Which of these two parts of the Roman Empire do you think Daniel would have been more focused on? the east because that's the one that concerned he and his people and that's the one that concerned the same areas as the previous empire what happened to the eastern roman empire in the 1400s ad it was overtaken by the islamic ottoman empire focused in turkey i think there might be more to do with uh, the news of the week, and Dubai makes a, an agreement with uh, Israel. There might be more there than anything that ever happened in the European Union as related to end times alignments. I think there's something too concerns about concern of a revised Ottoman Empire that I think Turkey's president would absolutely love to be the leader of. That doesn't mean I think he's the Antichrist. That doesn't mean I'm going to try to predict how those things, because we're not given how those things in detail will, rec we would recognize it when it happened, 
That's about all we're given. So what are we given to know? As he explains through some of those, these things, that little horn is going to speak great things in verse 25, and he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. So they're going to change times and law, and they're going to be given into his hands for times and times and half a time. Three and a half times. Maybe it's the three and a half years of the book of Revelation, the second half of the tribulation. But the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion will be taken away and be consumed and destroyed. And what happens? What's the sum of it all? Daniel wants a little more, and the angel spells it out in a little bit more detail. But what does he end with again? Same thing as before, verses 27 and 28. And yet, the main point is still the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, the Most High's, or His kingdom, the Son of Man, shall be in everlasting kingdoms, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. As was said before, forever and forever and ever. His kingdom shall be given to the saints of the Most High. The same outcome. Jesus shall reign, and when Jesus reigns, in his redemption of you and I, in his restoration of us back into right relationship with God, what has he done? He has stood us upright again. He has stood us upright before him in his presence, in relationship and fellowship with him, and to carry out his intention of dominion over his creation. So it's not just for Jesus. It's for Jesus and all those who are in Jesus. What we were made for, he has redeemed us for forever. That is our future. And Daniel leaves the room. Verse 28, he says, this is the end of the matter. He wanted to write the sum of the thing. He wanted to write the end of the matter. He wanted to know, but what's the truth about this? He says, that's it. That is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, as for you and I, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. There's some bad stuff coming. There's trouble on the horizon. And my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I kept the sum of it in my heart. In the midst of the trouble that Daniel also would experience and his people would suffer greatly, in the midst of all that, he kept the end in view. And that's what you and I need to do. In the midst of our current, in the midst of our present, the answer to the injustices and the oppression that occurs among humanity, and it does, but the answer will not be found in the next change of administration or empire. There's three changes that you see in in Daniel, three kinds of changes. There is perhaps regeneration hinted at with the experience of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. But certainly there are the redeemed, there are the saints of the Most High. And their perspective is changed. Their outlook, and they're the ones who will be merciful. They're the ones who hunger after righteousness. They're the ones who will be the peacemakers of others. There, there, there are also those, there's, there is some reform. Daniel has a reforming influence. He's to seek the peace of the city that he finds himself in. And there's also revolution. The Medes carried out on the Babylonians. The Greeks carried out on the Mede Persians. The Romans will carry it out on the Greeks. There's, there's revolution and upheaval. 
That's in the flow of history to, supposed to be the, 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 the not norm. That's the occasional. When God is judging a previous, really, society and culture as a whole. But each new empire does not bring justice and righteousness upon the earth. That only come when we have a king, Jesus I was driving this morning, I was, I was driving into church, and I, and I saw the political yard signs. You know, it's, it's that season. They, with, I, I guess the rain stops and the signs grow. I'm not sure just how that works, but they're popping up all over like flowers, brightly colored and everything. I thought, you know, I should make a sign. I should make a sign that says, Jesus is king. Not Jesus for king, Jesus is king. He doesn't need your vote, but he will bring you into his family. I want to make that sign. I just, I'm, a little, I'm a little challenged when it comes to graphics and such, but that's what struck me. The answer to oppression is not a new administration. God is, will set his king on his holy hill. This whole thing going on today with the, with the uh, tensions, the division of our society into different classes of oppressed and oppressors. That's something called critical theory, and it's applied in race, for instance, as something called critical race theory. And what it says is that based on identity, when you're talking about race, it's based on racial majorities and minorities that you are either an oppressor or an oppressed. Not by what you do, but by which category you're in. What your race identity is makes you either an oppressor or one of the oppressed. It doesn't matter your own circumstances or what you do with them. That's irrelevant. You are oppressor or oppressed. The same is true with male or female. The same is true with gender identity. In fact, the more different my minority categories you can stack up, the more oppressed you are by these various groups of oppressor and the more moral authority you have to rightly understand things in ways that only you can because of your, the ways that you have been oppressed. But what that does is it continues an ongoing tension and division among people. It doesn't ever bring any unity together. And it continues conflict because whenever the, uh, a new group is given power, just as in the flow of history... We have enough scientific samples to conclude that the new group in power will always oppress and dominate others to their own advantage. There is no answer here. The answer is here. The answer is in the unity that does come around Jesus and his kingdom, which will last forever. And that's what we press to. We then seek reform. We will seek the peace of the city. We will seek the shalom, the good, the blessing for the city that we find ourselves in. But we will seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. We will seek it for ourselves. We will seek it for people around us. We want them to know King Jesus as well. We want them to know the hope in, his, in him despite the presence. Romans chapter 12 tells us how to endure under, how to remain under tribulation. There's a phrase in there in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, and that phrase is to be patient in tribulation or to remain under the weight and pressure of troubles. How do you remain under the weight and pressure of the present troubles? 
In this life, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. There's a promise you can hold on to. There's a promise you can put in your pocket and walk out of this morning and say, man, I'm glad I came to church this morning. Bob reminded me that I'm going to have trouble. How will I hold up under that in the midst while I wait for his kingdom? There's two pillars on either side of you, either side of your trouble that you're abiding under. That weight is there, and it could crush you, but these two pillars hold it off of you. You know what the two pillars are? Now let me read to you with that image, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, abiding under troubles, being constantly in prayer. The other, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pillar of hope, and there is a pillar of prayer. While I hope in God and while I continue to commune with him, those are the things that strengthen me in the midst of the present trouble. We could deny the trouble. We could look for all kinds of ways, focusing on this little pink bit of time that we have right now, trying to make it as comfortable as possible. So quickly it's going to end. What we need to do is in this time, lean towards that time. Because that will last forever. And to prepare ourselves, to grow ourselves as followers of Jesus for that time. And to invite anybody that we can to join us in it. Because you know what? You don't have to worry about musical chairs when it comes to Jesus' kingdom. There is enough room for everybody there. So this is something that we can and should share. There's a song that we're going to close with. It grabs hold of this theme of the ancient of days. So as the worship team again come forward, I want to invite you as we consider this song, sing it as a prayer. Sing it as a prayer of confidence and trust in the one who your hope is in the midst of trouble, and the one that changes what the trouble even means. One of the verses says, Though the nations rage and kingdoms rise and fall, there's still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the ancient of days. Verse 2, though the, dread of, through the, though the dread of night overwhelms my soul. There are some places where you might live where that would be true day by day right now. The troubles that come night after night. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, he is here with me. I am not alone. There's Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 6. Verse 3, though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. Because that's when my joy will be complete. You see, we, we might look for our joy to be complete here. That's not God's purpose. We will get a taste of everlasting joy here and now. We long for it. We long, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus said, you will be filled. Oh, Father, direct our hope. Father, set it clear before us. Not that it would be some abstract pie in the sky sometime in the future, but Lord, we would see it so clearly, the reality of your promise, that it would impact and change the individual choices that we make today. It would cause us to see others, not merely in how they might benefit us or, or how they relate to us immediately here and now, but we would see the people around us as potential neighbors 
in eternity in your kingdom forever. Lord, set our hearts on the joy that is yet before us. In Jesus' name, amen.